Thank you for listening to Your Story Matters. If you have a comment or question about one of our guests or would like to suggest a guest, you may do so at www.yourstorymatters.net. Changing the world one story at a time. I have the pleasure of interviewing Edie Weinstein today. She is a journalist, a speaker, a coach, and the author of The Bliss Mistress Guide to Transforming the Ordinary into the Extraordinary. I'm very excited for her to share some of her story today and to talk about her book and some of the things she's learned along her journey that will hopefully encourage and inspire our listeners. Hi, Edie. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Angela. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) I'm so glad that we connected. I went over some of your website at liveandjoy.org and looked at your materials, and I'm just really excited when I find other people who are on a mission, so to speak, to encourage and inspire people to really live the extraordinary, not just the ordinary, typical life, if you will. Mm -hmm. And before you talk about the book, I would love for you to share with our listeners some of your background Thank you. Well, the first thing to know is that I'm a child of the 60s. I'm 53 years old, and I grew up in suburbia, Willingboro, New Jersey, which is one of the original Levittowns, Levitt communities, and uh, I had wonderful parents, um, solid marriage. They were married almost 52 years when my dad died in 2008, Mm -hmm. one sister. So I grew up surrounded by a lot of love, a lot of support, large extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins. Um, very supportive, nurturing. My parents told me you could do anything you set your heart and mind to, and that helped. I also grew up in a family where education was important, so I read a lot. My mother would say that I started talking at six months and haven't stopped since. (laughs) I was always carrying a book around with Uh me. Uh, I would always ask questions, usually at the dinner table and often about sex, so my sister didn't have to ask them. (laughs) Uh (laughs) So... I wasn't shy. I was not a shy child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I was allowed to run and play and skin my knees. And um, But the other part of it is that I grew up with asthma. So I had some medical issues. But my parents never babied me. They never limited me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I became a competitive swimmer in my, my teens and then became a coach for three years. Mm-hmm. So I learned resilience. And that's a huge part of the work that I do is teaching people how to be resilient. Right. That makes not just sense. strong, mm-hmm. not just strong, but resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And talk about, if you will, I mean, it sounds like you had a great childhood, and I'm always happy to hear that because sometimes yeah. we hear stories, especially on the show, that are not so great and have had many, many challenges, but people have overcome them, obviously. Yes. What did you do throughout your life when there were moments of feeling discouraged or feeling like you weren't sure that you could get through, you know, maybe dealing with the asthma or having to take medication, things like that. Well, my parents were always available to talk to, even though my dad worked in, in quotes, crazy hours. He was a milkman and a bus driver. So blue collar dad, not professionally educated, but a good support, a good listener. Um, he would He would say this one thing that could sound dismissive, but he would say, if that's the worst thing that ever happens to you, you'll be okay. And he said it from a place of love and and knowing that I could get through anything. My parents offered a lot of wisdom. Um, I call them mom-isms and dad wisdom. My mother would say, walk in like you own the joint with head held high, shoulders back. And I added knockers up, you know, like really just expansive. That's great. Yeah. My father would say they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. So there's no need to be intimidated by anybody. 
what else would they say? Uh, my father and I did some headbutting in my teens, usually about politics and religion, typical you know adolescent stuff. And at the end of the conversation, he would always say, "As long as we love each other, everything is okay. You know, we'll we'll get through this disagreement." And remember, this was during the Vietnam War, so we had some differences of opinion. My father, being a veteran, uh, you know, differences of opinion about politics sometimes. And that helped, knowing that I could talk to them. I grew up with a solid spiritual faith. Um, we, I grew up going to synagogue. Um, I went to Hebrew school till I was 16. But my religion these days is what I, I say, my, my love is my religion. And God's too big to put in a box. But I had a mm. solid foundation. And there were always family rituals. I, could, I felt like I could count on my parents. Uh-huh. And what I say now that they're both gone, my dad died in 2008, my mom in 2010, is that they raised me to be able to live without them. Mm, powerful. A people, yeah. A lot of people are devastated when their parents die, die, and then, but I'm not, I mean, I'm sad, certainly, and I miss them, but I talk to them every day in my head and my heart, and I thank them for raising me to be independent. Mm-hmm. To get, you know, I knew I could get through everything because they got through everything. They both lost their fathers. In, uh, my mother lost her father when she was 18, and then my grandmother died um, when I was four. So my mother was in her 30s. Mm-hmm. My father's father died when he was, it was right after they got married, so he was in his 30s. And then my grandmother died, the other grandmother died when I was 14. So they both lost parents at a relatively early age. Um, my father's family was immigrant Russian Jewish, so they learned survivorship. Right. They learned how to mm-hmm. start fresh. So again, I learned that loss is part of life and that you get through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You love Trump's fear, love Trump's death, everything. So I had that behind me too. That's a great foundation. Very powerful things to yeah. learn and to know about, especially having that instilled in you since a child, and it really mm-hmm. becomes a solid core. So that's amazing that you have that, and that you've also turned that around to share with other people. Because as mm-hmm. we know, there are so many people out there suffering and alone, and feeling discouraged and hopeless. And I would love for you to share with the listeners what do you think it was within you that created a mindset of wanting to help others, to reach out to them, to write the book, to do all the things that you do? Well, again, my parents as role models. In addition to a full-time job, my father was a volunteer firefighter. He volunteered at the synagogue. There was a little girl in our neighborhood that either had muscular dystrophy or CP, I forget which, cerebral palsy. And he did what was called patterning, which Mm -hmm. I guess is the equivalent of physical therapy. He'd go see her once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, He, what else did he volunteer with? Um, Just, they were always available. My father was known as the guy that would give you the shirt off his back. Mm -hmm. My mother worked, when my sister and I were young, she worked, she had jobs that she could do out of the home, like Avon lady. She was an Avon lady for a while. Mm -hmm. And she worked as a gate guard in our pool because we both swam. My sister Mm -hmm. and I were both, you know, little little drowned rats. They're both on swim team. Uh, so, and then, then when we were old enough to stay alone, she worked at Sears. But in addition to that, she volunteered at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all, she volunteered at the synagogue. They were always actively involved in things outside the family, but they always had time for us. So they modeled doing it all. Mm-hmm. My parents told me I could do whatever, my sister too, whatever we wanted to do as long as we could support ourselves. Mm. 
So I went to college, got my master, bachelor's degree, excuse me, in psychology, and then a few years later, master's degree in social work. Mm -hmm. And they never said, oh, don't do that. You won't make enough money, as long as they knew I could support myself. Mm -hmm. Social work is not a typically well-paid profession. Right. Nobody goes into it to get rich. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm realizing now that there's a mindset that comes along with that that I'm now overcoming, and that's a sense of poverty consciousness and sacrifice. Yes. It is possible to do service work in the world and be well compensated, Mm -hmm. and that's something that I would love for people to know because in the human services field, in the healing professions, whether you do massage or coaching or therapy or chiropractic, whatever it is, you still have to pay your bills. That's right. Now, the, the electric company doesn't care that I'm an interfaith minister. They want to be paid on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mortgage company doesn't care that I'm a social worker. They want they want their money. That's <laughs> so, right. That's right. So I that was instilled in me too. Um, I've always had you know my, my family, my grandmother too, my, my maternal grandmother, the one that died when I was four, was everybody's grandmother in the neighborhood. So I learned caretaking for better or for worse. Now, there's the worst part of it, too, um, from, from experts. I became codependent. I became somebody that, that thought I had to heal, fix, cure, save, kiss it, make it better, kiss mm-hmm. the boo-boos, make them go away. Um, I attracted a lot of people who were in need right. of that, and I got burned out. Mm-hmm. I spent six years going to CODA meetings, Codependence Anonymous, mm-hmm. just like AA, except for people that, that are dealing with that addiction of being people pleasers, of not knowing where they start and somebody else stops. I needed to learn boundaries. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that said, what did she say? That she liked to be essential mm-hmm. in people's lives. And boy, did I, did I like that. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt like I earned approval, was right. to be essential and needed and the go-to person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I work full-time now in a psychiatric hospital doing therapy and case management. And I've had to set boundaries with patients and families saying, here's what I can do, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's powerful, and I'm glad that you shared that because I think yeah. that's important, especially as caregivers, helpers, whatever we want mm-hmm. to call ourselves, it's important to have boundaries. It's important to realize uh, that we need to do whatever we do for all the right reasons. Yes. And it sounds like that was a great part of your journey to go through the burnout and then learn about that and how do you shift that so you still do what you're meant to do, what your purpose is mm-hmm. and help others, but you're not constantly feeling burned out and like you're not getting enough. Right. And I call it savior behavior. And I've learned that it's pretty arrogant to think that I have the answers for everybody. Mm-hmm. I have my answers. And sometimes I don't listen to my own good advice, Mm -hmm. but I can only offer somebody from my experience. And I tell my patients, I don't tell you to do anything that I don't do. We teach what we need to learn. So I'm offering this to you. You can choose to take it or not take it, but ask yourself, is your life working the way you're doing it now? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, here's some options, something to think about. The other major lesson came to me when my husband got ill. Um, He was diagnosed with hepatitis C in 1992, which I lovingly call our year from hell Mm -hmm. because it was the same year I had an ectopic pregnancy and almost hemorrhaged to death. It was the year that we lost our home to Hurricane Andrew in Homestead, Florida, which is where we lived back then. Uh, We moved back up to to Bucks County outside of Philadelphia, and then six years later, Michael died. And um, I did what I called God wrestling, 
Mm. When he was in the ICU for the very last time, uh, we were there for five and a half weeks. And this ties in with the codependency stuff too. As a caregiver, which is what I was the last few years of Michael's life, uh, in addition to my, my job, I was a nursing home social worker at the time. And um, I, the God wrestling part was when I said to God, he's mine and you can't have him. Mm-hmm. And God said, uh-uh, he's mine and he's on loan to you. And I clearly heard these words, like everyone else in your life. Right. So that's how I've come to appreciate everybody. So literally the day Michael died, I came home from the hospital because I didn't sleep at home until that night. And the phone rang and it was a young man from my CODA meeting who had been asking me all along to be his sponsor. Mm-hmm. And a couple things, and I turned him down before I said, I can't do it. My husband is ill and you need a man to be your sponsor. And I'm so new in recovery that I don't have it to give to you. Mm-hmm. So he called again I, that night. I answered the phone and I said, not only can I not be your sponsor, please call someone else. I can't even talk to you right now. My husband just died. But, mm. but, but, and I said, I'm hanging up the phone now. Take good care of yourself. Click. And I was ex- I don't know, exhilarated. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was one of those, you know, oh my God, I did this moments and the floor didn't swallow me up. And lightning right. crashing. I said no to somebody. And there was such a sense of freedom. I don't think I went back to a CODA meeting after that. I think I was, I said I graduated, mm-hmm. but I still have to do the work every day. Right. That makes it's, sense. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. It's all practice. Absolutely. Because we spend so long really becoming certain things that it's not that easy to just read a book or go through counseling mm-hmm. and end it. So it is a daily practice of making sure that our new habits stay with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How, when you went through some of these more discouraging moments and obviously painful the loss of your husband were there things that helped you to get through what you were feeling at the time whether it was depression anger guilt I'm not sure you know what you felt but can you share some of that with the listeners because I know those are sort of universal feelings especially dealing with loss and illness that people always want to hear how how do I get through this what do I do is there a tip you have to share Sure. The first thing to know is that depression and grief are two different things. Depression is a clinical medical condition that sometimes involves brain chemistry. And grief is a normal human reaction to loss. Um, I never felt depressed. I never felt hopeless. I did, in quotes, normal people stuff. Mm -hmm. But having said that, when somebody you love dies, you need to create a new sense of normal. I had to change my routines. I was no longer a wife, a caregiver. Mm. I was no longer, I was the sole breadwinner now. Um, I have. I had an 11-year-old son. He's now 24 that I needed to raise solo. Um, Michael had no health insurance, or no, excuse me, not, no life insurance. He had health insurance, thank God, but had no life insurance. So I had to pick up the ball. You know, we were now a one-income family. Mm-hmm. And I'm still in the same house that I was in when he died in 1998. Mm-hmm. I'm able to keep a roof over our heads because of learned resilience. So the, um, the three F's got me through, faith, family, and friends. Mm. I knew I was not abandoned spiritually. Now, I don't tell anybody what to believe spiritually. I don't have the right to do that. And I say it's an inside job. But I knew I could count on my family and friends. Mm-hmm. There are people who, when they're widowed, feel like a fifth wheel when they're with their friends. Never felt like that. My married friends, my single friends, I would hang out with whoever was available. Mm-hmm. I knew I could call on them at any time, day or night. Um, I immersed myself in work. I went back to work at the nursing home until 2001. 
or 2002, and that's when I started this job here. It became too far to drive. It was like an hour and 15 minutes each way. So um, I went to seminary, became an interfaith minister. That was an interesting story. Michael had been in seminary himself through in New York. It's called the New Seminary. And he had finished the first of a two-year program. Literally, the day he died, when we disconnected the machines, the voice returned. And being a psychiatric social worker, I know the difference between spiritual guidance and, and psychotic voices. This was not a psychotic voice telling mm-hmm. me this. The voice said, call the seminary and ask to finish what Michael started. Mm-hmm. And I knew exactly what that meant because his first year, I had studied casually along with him. Mm-hmm. I would read to him when he couldn't concentrate to read. I would type his papers. I was learning the course material, not knowing the reason for it. See, sometimes we don't know why things happen. Right. And... You know, he started it so I could finish it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all the seminary a few days after he died, and he died December 21st of 1998 at the winter solstice after the last candle of Hanukkah, right before Christmas. His um, uh, memorial service was a day of, was Christmas Eve day in the morning. So a few days after that, I called the seminary and they said, you can enroll, you can graduate with Michael's class on two conditions. One is that you're doing this for yourself and not just for him. Mm-hmm. The other is that you have to do the first year's work all over again that he had done. And then the second year's work back to back and you can graduate in May or June, or you can wait till next year to graduate. Take your time with it. I said, no, no, I want to do it now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I got it all done in five months. I I did the seminary work in five months, became ordained. Wow. And, and uh, I do bereavement counseling as well. Mm-hmm. And I do funerals and, and memorial services as well as weddings and baby blessings. So I, you know, it, it was more than just book knowledge because up until then, you know, I'd lost a few loved ones here and there, but up until then, I didn't know what it was like to lose a spouse. Right now, no. I also now know what it's like to be an adult orphan, and I write about both all of those, all three of the losses in my book. Mm-hmm. And I encourage people to be with their feelings, whatever they are. Right. The only rule is you don't get to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, suicide is not an option if you're feeling if you're if you're grieving. That doesn't bring the person back, and it creates more grief for the people. That are you know that are already reeling from the loss of this of this person. That's right, powerful stuff. And I love that you clarified the difference between grief and depression. Mm-hmm. That was very helpful, I'm sure, for many of the listeners. And the two great tips. Obviously, there were a lot of great things that you said, but developing new routines after a loss is so important and getting support. And it sounded like you did both very well. And that's some of the things that. When people message me or talk about different things they're going through, it seems like they really haven't moved on and they Mm -hmm. also haven't found other people to support them, whether it's talking or praying or just spending time together. So those are two really powerful things that I'm so thankful that you did yourself and learned that they were helpful. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, and I thank you for the thank you, uh, the other thing that I found helpful was connecting with other people who had lost loved ones. Um, I met this woman at a caregiver's conference who had lost three husbands. She was a nurse. So she was the one I'd go to with my widow-to-widow questions. I never went to a widow-to-widow support group or bereavement support group, but they're they're priceless for people, particularly those that don't have a lot of supports. Hospitals have them. Hospice programs have them. Um, They can just look up bereavement programs or loss and grief programs on Mm -hmm. the Internet or call right. their local hospital or hospice. 
for, for grief support groups. There are grief support groups for um, parents as well. Compassionate Friends is a big one. That's a, you know, that's a wonderful support group for mm -hmm. people that have lost children, no matter what age. And um, that's helpful. The other thing that I found is that not only did I have to recreate myself, I got to recreate myself. Mm. Um, although my husband and I had similar tastes as far as decorating is concerned, I was looking around our bedroom and I said, I get to decorate however I want now. Right. I, you know, these are my choices. This is my house now. I don't have to run, not that, you know, I had to you know, run things past him, but I said, you know what? I get to make these decisions and it's both scary and exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So everything is on me now. Oh my God. And then, holy smokes, everything's on me. Wow. Mm -hmm. you know, I to, I'm the queen of reframe. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned to, to reframe. And it's not just about when life gives you lessons, make lemonade, gives you lemons. Like, well, when life gives you lessons, you can make lemonade too. But when life gives you lessons, <laughs> it's not just about making lemonade. It's about seeing the the treasure in the trash that's right about seeing the beauty and even the most painful experiences because i differentiate between pain and suffering mm -hmm. pain is inevitable suffering is optional mm. i heard it phrased so beautifully this fall i was at an event called the celebrate your life conference which is in phoenix mm -hmm. and one of my favorite speakers teachers authors was there elizabeth lesser she's the uh, one of the founders of the omega institute and she wrote a book called broken open and I got to hear her speak a number of years ago at Omega, and I was so moved by her that I had to go see her when she spoke at this conference. And she, she talked about the Buddhist concept of the two arrows. The first arrow is the inevitability of life. Death happens, loss happens, whether it's illness, job, money, children leaving home. Mm -hmm. Those are the inevitable arrows. That's the pain. The suffering is the second arrow with which we continuously poke at ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the, it's not fair, I'm a victim, how come, why? Right. Why is a useless question. The mm -hmm. answer is, you know, because, 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 there's really no other reason for that. Mm -hmm. Why does it matter? And so the idea is to take that arrow out of your chest and stop stabbing yourself with it. So I learned to do that. I don't think I felt like a victim when Michael died. Um, he only once, I think, asked, why is this happening? And I didn't have an answer for him, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I look back on our marriage, and we were married almost 12 years at the time. We had started a magazine together called Visions from 1988 to 1998, mm -hmm. and it was about holistic health and wellness. I'm thinking that that's part of the reason we got together, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. from a, a soul contract perspective, from a spiritual perspective, is so we could start this magazine. Mm -hmm. And it's really what launched my career. I became a, uh, you know, an interviewer. I became a freelance journalist after we sold the magazine. And that's one of my greatest passions and joys is, is interviewing. And, um, and I've done radio. And I'm doing, I, I love doing what you, what you do. I love mm -hmm. getting to know people through their words, through their experiences. Right, right. And great story. That's awesome how it all kind of evolves to... Mm -hmm really create the life that we're supposed to have and and mm -hmm. then when we live in that it's even more amazing oh, so yeah. what happened as far as leading up to you wanting to write the book and what was the purpose in your message there okay um, I had always loved writing and I had been an interviewer and had written articles since 1988 and people have been saying, you should really put your articles together into a book. Mm -hmm. I have a friend named Jim Donovan who's a published author as well, and he's a motivational coach. 
And he said, this book is not doing anybody any good in your head. Finish the damn book. Write it, get it out there, publish it. Good advice. Yes, yeah. And um, I said, but writing articles on deadline is easy. Mm -hmm. I, I can do it just like that. But putting together a book felt daunting. Mm -hmm. So somebody, I don't remember who it was, bless their heart, suggested taking the best of the articles that I've written and compiling them, or, or not even the best of the articles, but write stories, distinct chapters, as if they were articles, one at a time. And when you have enough, you got a book. Mm -hmm. So I had about 60 or 70, and I whittled them down to 30. And then I added a bonus chapter. In 2008, I got to live what I call my 20-year 20 20 year journalistic dream, where I got to interview the Dalai Lama. I had been wanting to do that from when we first started publishing the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I tell people that it's an object lesson about never, ever, 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 ever giving up on your dreams. That's right. So what got me to that interview was that I had set this, the intention, planted the seeds, started talking about it. There wasn't a single person that thought it wasn't going to happen. Everybody in my life said, absolutely, someday this will happen. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we support you in this. It's not a pipe dream. It's not pie in the sky. It's, it's real. So I created vision boards. And you, you know what those are, right? Yes. Some people, if you don't know, for people, people who don't know, there are collages where you cut out pictures and words, and they're a focal point. They're a tool to use to focus your intention. So on each of the vision boards, and I probably have like three or four of them throughout the house, I had a picture of His Holiness. One of them was actually a caricature, which was pretty cute. And then I started visualizing it. Somebody else said, write the questions as if you're going to be answering, or excuse me, asking him tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, in 2004, five maybe or 2006 I was asked to do some promotion for a presentation he was giving it at Rutgers University in New Brunswick New Jersey and I said I'd love to and by the way is he granting interviews nope sorry and I said all right I'll help anyway so I went to the stadium there were like 20,000 people there and I walked around the stadium interviewing the attendees and said you know and I, and I wrote about the event I said why are you here mm -hmm. you know what draws you so <clears throat> that helped then about two years later, I get a call from folks that are bringing him into Philadelphia and to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And I said, yes, I'd be glad to help. And by the way, and they said, nope, sorry, not granting interviews. Then a stroke of luck, cosmic coincidence. Um, I must have been a very good girl. I don't know what it was. <laughs> a friend of mine um, who's been involved with the Tibetan rights movement for a number of years became the event, event manager at... Uh, the event that he, His Holiness was going to be doing in Philadelphia. And he said, I can't guarantee it, but we got a real good shot. They want, you know, they want people to write about his experience here. So it was sort of like that kid's game. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Uh -huh. about don't two give up. Later, yeah, don't give up. About two weeks later, I'm at this outdoor music event in Philadelphia. Uh, WXPN is the University of Pennsylvania station. And it's my, my favorite station. And, and they have this annual exponential music festival. So I'm there with a friend. And I'm talking to a photographer friend. And the phone rings. And it's my friend Greg. And he says, are you sitting down? And I said, should I be? Mm -hmm. He said, absolutely. We got the interview. And by the way, you're the only journalist in the Philadelphia area that he's granting an interview with. I screamed into the phone. My photographer friend snapped the picture. Awesome. <laughs> Welcome to history. Then I had... Um, two simultaneous, what I call, um, uh, are you allowed to say the S word on, on your radio show? You can say the S word. S word, okay. I had what we call, I called a holy shit moment 
<laughs> where I, I was somewhere between, um, you know, holy shit terror and orgasmic bliss. I'm assuming you can say the O word on your show too then. <laughs> and I said, when in doubt, go for the orgasmic bliss. And it was surrealistic. So he said, take off July 16th and 17th. You know, so I um, went there on July 16th. And it turned out that they wanted the Philadelphia Inquirer to cover it too. I was there as a freelancer. So there was only one other journalist, um, David O'Reilly, who was just amazing. Um, he is the uh, religion columnist for the Inquirer. So we were these two conspiratorial little kids because we had all these other journalists around us who didn't know that we would have an exclusive interview mm -hmm. the next day of His Holiness. So he said, I got a new suit for the occasion. I said, I got a new dress for the occasion. You know, what do you, what do you wear? Mm -hmm. His Holiness. So the next day we go to interview him and I walk in there and there's, you know, all the a cadre of police officers and secret service agents. And you do this ritual when you meet him where you hold a white silk scarf. It's called a kata. Mm -hmm. And you hold it in prayer pose in front of your, your heart. And he takes it, blesses it, and puts it around your shoulders. Well, after he did that, he hugged me. Mm. And I almost melted into the floor in a puddle of tears. Like that mm. cry. And then we sat down and talked to him. Now, David and I had decided that rather than just take the 15 minutes each that we were granted with him, that we would go in together and get a whole half hour. That's great. He gave us 45 minutes. Mm. So 45 minutes. And the interview is available, and I can send it to you. And, but it's also a chapter in my book. So I figured, what the heck, because I can. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's wonderful, and that's a great story. So I'm assuming the book is about the different experiences you've had throughout your life that yes. have not been just ordinary moments, but have been extraordinary. Right. right. And I call them, you know, I look at this as a whole genre, the chicken soup for the soul genre, where they're, they're slice of life stories, word pictures. I'm not a graphic artist, but people have said that I paint word pictures. Mm -hmm. When they read my writing, it's a vicarious experience. It's like being there. Mm -hmm. So some of the stories, you know, that was one of the stories was the interview with His, His Holiness. Um, another story is called Zen Starbucks, and it was about a conversation I had with a friend in Starbucks. Um, another one's called A Relationship with Chocolate, which took place at a, a workshop that combined yoga and chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, another one is called The Servant of the Creation, where I wrote about an experience I had with Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Right. And she does this thing that's now a TED Talk. But I had seen her at a yoga studio in New Hope, and she talked about how those of us that are creative think that we're the ones doing the creation, but we're really the servants of the creation. Right. It comes through us. I mm -hmm. say that my writing writes me. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the chapters. The last two chapters in the book are about the hospice journey I took with my mother. Um, she went into hospice in May of 2010 and then died November, the day after Thanksgiving, 2010. So she was instrumental in my finishing the book. She said, I want to read it. And I said, then you're going to have to live a whole lot longer because it's not done. She mm -hmm. said, well, you come down here and you write. So I would sit by her bed and I would write. Mm. And um, some of the chapters are about the mom miracles that we experienced. The last two chapters are about that. After I finished the book, I, you know, I found myself dragging my feet thinking, you know, I, I have what I call this monkey mind, and you probably, I'm sure, you know, you have one too, that sits on your shoulder and yammers at you about how you're not going to be enough of this, or you're too much of that, or yes. who's going to read this. Mm -hmm. And one of the chapters is called Pissing on the Fire, where I find myself dousing the fire with my inner critic, myself, my mm -hmm. self-criticism. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the book is a really vulnerably, emotionally naked view of 
the things that I go through. Because on the surface, most people that know me would say I'm pretty confident. Right. Mm-hmm. I've learned to be. My husband used to say that I was an emotional contortionist who'd bend over backwards to please people. I was like a deer caught in the headlights when it came to making decisions. And that I was always looking over my shoulder to see if the propriety police were watching me. Mm. And now that I can do yoga and bend, can bend over backwards, I no longer do it emotionally. Right. So that, you know, those are the things that are in the book. People who have read it, and some who know me, some who haven't, have said that um, even if the same experiences don't mirror theirs, the emotional content does that it feels familiar, that it's supportive of them. Mm-hmm. Some people have said it's like having a friend in the room. Mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that they read it like a box of chocolates. Like they, sometimes they nibble at it, and sometimes they eat the whole thing all at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they can read it again. Right. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that you were able to put your stories together and share them in such a profound way that really touches other people and will help them to learn that whatever they think and feel or going through, though maybe not the same, is still valuable and important and still all about learning lessons. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. So how would people find out more about you and be able to pick up a copy of the book? Well, my website, as you mentioned earlier, is www.liveinjoy.org. That's L-I-V-E-I-N-J-O-Y.org. They can order the book through Amazon.com. And again, it's the Bliss Mistress Guide to transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary. It's available there. Wonderful. Edie, thank you so much for taking some time today to share some of your story with our listeners and to share some tips that you've learned along your journey so far. I'm so glad to hear about all that you're doing and all the things that you're sharing to encourage and inspire others. Thank you. One quick thing I forgot to mention. Um, I write a daily blog on BeliefNet, which is an interfaith website. It's called the Bliss Blog. So people can read that, they can comment on it, they can, you know, so it's like an article every day. Very good. I like BeliefNet. There's a lot of great writers there, a lot of great content. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. That's a good thing for the listeners to know too, another way to connect with you. Yes, absolutely. 